This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Woman. Today's Risky Woman is Vivian Arts. And given the mission of Risky Women to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance, and our ambition to shine a light and champion female experts, we're thrilled to have you join us today to talk about data privacy and gender diversity too. Welcome. Thanks very much, Kimberly. So a, a short intro from me, Vivian Arts is the Chief Privacy Officer at Thomson Reuters, managing a global team of privacy experts across all business lines. Prior to joining Thomson Reuters in 2017, she was Managing Director and Global Head of Privacy, Legal and Head of International for Intellectual Property and Technology Law Group at City. Vivian chairs the International Regulatory Strategy Data Working Group and is a member of the European Advisory Board of the International Association of Professionals. Vivian is also currently the President of Women in Banking and Finance, having been awarded the Champion for Women Award at the Women in Banking and Finance Awards for Achievement in 2016. So we're thrilled to have you with us today. So you've had an interesting career journey. Before City, you were in private practice law and you quit in 2000 as you couldn't see how to break into partner level at the firms where partners were predominantly male and there were very few female role models. How did this decision change your views and aspirations and and the path you took in your career? Well, I think there's two aspects to it. Um, Private practice was a very specific beast at the time, and you're absolutely right. Um, The number of role models who were women were extremely limited, um, and it wasn't really something where I felt I could see a long-term future in the way in which I wanted. But private practice did give me an opportunity to do a couple of in-house roles, and actually that is where I saw senior women in practice as general counsels. And I thought, you know what? That's what I want to do. I want to be a senior woman and there are the role models in the private sector. Um, And so that's what I I, I aimed for. Um, I looked around and I thought, you know, which sector am I going to move into? And financial services was going through incredible growth. Um, It was regarded as certainly the most sophisticated and interesting place to be in terms of the area that I was working on and from law and also from an in-house perspective. So it seemed a natural place uh, for me to, to, well, I suppose, to throw my eggs into the basket. So yes, I went off into... um, Uh, to become a corporate lawyer uh, in a bank, so uh, in-house rather than private practice. And I think it was really the best decision I ever made. Fantastic. So tell us a bit more about the journey that you've taken um, uh, before Thomson Reuters and and sort of how you've ended up as Chief Private Data Privacy Officer. Well, I started off as a technology lawyer. Um, When I qualified, um, privacy was in its nascency. It was very, very early days. Um, I remember having to do a bit of advice in relation to privacy and thinking, good grief, this has got to be the most unintuitive subject on the planet. Um, And I was very interested in technology. It was new. It was evolving. Everyone was looking at the internet. Um, There were lots of fascinating issues arising. And there was very little legislation in place. So it very much bootstrapped 
mapping. Um, you had the opportunity to apply existing legislation within a whole new context. So it was absolutely fascinating. But as time was went on and the internet developed and technology evolved, uh, we started doing more in terms of web and mobile. And then, of course, social media arrived. And with social media, privacy became a primary issue. Um, and increasingly, privacy was a topic. Um, and to be fair, I tried hard for a long time to get everyone in my team fascinated with privacy. Um, but unfortunately, um, it fell on deaf ears. So it, it fell to me really to pick up privacy. And so I decided I'd wrestle this beast and actually come to grips with it because I'd never really come to grips with privacy. And I think that was the best thing I ever did. I suddenly realized how fundamentally important privacy is, not only in the technology sphere and the internet, but across the board, and that there really was a future for privacy. So that was the moment. Nobody else would pick up this piece, so I picked it up um, and learned to love it and embrace it. Um, and I have been passionate about privacy ever since. That's fantastic. I, I love that because I think that's a lot of what you hear um, about people who are very successful is that passion for what you do and the fact that you love uh, privacy and have a passion for privacy. So tell us more about what it means to be Chief Privacy Officer. What does that entail? What does that role and your team do? And then what are the sort of skills and background that you think is really important for the role? It is a massive role. And I think one of the interesting things about privacy is it touches on every single aspect of your business. So it isn't just a client-facing issue. It isn't just an employee-facing issue. It isn't just a legislative issue. It embraces all of those. So with our team, um, we have an enormous remit, um, and we have to look at, I would say, three specific strands the first bit is around operationalizing privacy. It's about taking the legislation and the principles and actually figuring out how do you make that work in practice? How do you take a fantastic principle like you can only process data fairly and lawfully and then turn that into something that is meaningful within our business environment? Um, so I think that's an important element of it. And, and I, I think for most firms, that's probably the most challenging piece. The next piece is on the advisory side. Um, one of the challenges we have with privacy is that it, it, it rests on some very complex legislation. And if you've ever tried to read the GDPR, I would challenge anybody who's actually read it from end to end and stayed awake in one go. It is not easy. It's, it's detailed. It's lengthy. It's legalistic. And so a really important aspect of privacy is being able to advise the business on how best to apply privacy and also to interpret the principles because the legislation is evolving, the case law is evolving, um, and we're tackling new issues all the time where we don't have a precedent. And so we really have to think on our feet and apply the principles. So the advisory element is really, really big. And then the final area where I think is a huge um, uh, subject matter for us is actually in relation to advocacy. So interestingly, because privacy is evolving so quickly, so if you go back oh, 10 years, probably 50 countries in the world had privacy legislation. Now it's over 100. Um, if I look at my to-do list, I've got at least four 
important pieces of privacy legislation in jurisdictions where we operate, where we need to be doing some significant work, you know, this week and next week. And that's a lot to think about. So the advocacy piece is hugely important. Um, and that's about anticipating the legislation and then advocating um, with those who are, who are looking to implement privacy legislation to ensure that it actually still allow businesses to operate, albeit in a compliant way. Um, trying to figure out what are the potential unintended consequences of some really good ideas, but really could fall flat on its face. Because the last thing you want is for privacy legislation to require firms to do things that are frankly impossible to do because privacy loses all credibility, um, which is a significant challenge. So with a very small team, we effectively have to boil the ocean, we have to make it happen, we have to provide the key advice, and we have to help change the legislation or fine-tune it to make sure it actually achieves what it is intended to achieve. Um, and that's a really tall order. So some very interesting um, themes there around what's required in your team and, and, and the incredible kind of size of the privacy challenge and some of the changes that are going on. I also love the fact that it was sort of you identifying a gap that you then, you know, grabbed with both hands and, and used that as sort of your impetus for what could happen from a career perspective. So tell us more about, you know, what are some of the biggest um, risks you think you've taken in your career? And, and maybe even, you know, when you saw that gap and you saw this opportunity, you know, what, what advice do you have for others around, you know, thinking about how they could um, direct their own careers? It's a very difficult question asking a lawyer about risk. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a lawyer, I have that natural inbuilt um, aversion to risk. Um, but interestingly, I remember somebody saying to me once, uh, when you're, when you're, tend to be a risk-averse person, which let's face it, I am a risk-averse person. Um, the way to take a risk is to keep one foot in something you know, and then take a risk with the other foot. Um, and I think that's very much what I did when I made that move in terms of private practice to in-house, was I kept my lawyering side, but I moved my sector. And I went into banking. I knew nothing about banking. I bought a little book called um, What Does Financial Services Look Like? And I made sure it was a very small one because it was going to be too big. I wouldn't be able to understand the terms. And I read that to understand, you know, how does the city operate? Because it was this great mystery, the city. It was obviously doing fantastically well, but I didn't know much about it at all. And it was interesting. I think that was when I started at the bank um, and when I really didn't know anything about banking. Um, that was one of my first occasions where I found some really supportive colleagues who were women. And it was interesting, a female colleague took me under her wing and she said to me, look, I know you don't know anything about banking, but you do know a lot about your law. So um, I'll tell you how you succeed. And that is head out to the trading floor and ask all of these chaps who were very pleased about um, what they do and could talk for England to go ahead and talk to you and to show you. And honestly, play the quote unquote dumb female and say, you know, tell me all about it, boys. And at that stage, it was very male dominated and it worked incredibly well. I went out onto the trading floor and I said, guys, this is fascinating, but I don't understand it. Please, could you explain it to me? And I had to say that they were really, really good. I mean, you could criticize them and say they were mansplaining, but seriously, mm -hmm. um, they're actually talking about what they were passionate about. Um, and they helped me to learn enormously about something which I frankly knew almost nothing about. So I took that security of the law and 
that challenge in terms of banking and combined them together um, and together with tremendous colleagues on both sides, actually managed to turn that into um, something slightly more successful. That's brilliant. I love that. I love that, you know, sort of having the two legs of, you know, taking something that you've sort of got a solid footing on and then, you know, looking for something else where you can sort of branch out. So that's brilliant. So Vivian, you are also president of Women in Banking and Finance. Um, and that was a role that you didn't think you would apply for and be successful initially. So tell us more about Women in Banking and Finance, the role and the aspirations that you have for the organisation and your gender agenda. Thank you so much. Um, so Women in Banking and Finance, applying for the role for me was very much about putting into practice the fact that I'd actually won this award, which was a recognition of being a champion for women. And I thought, crikey, if I've been recognized for that, I really must do something to make that happen and to continue with that mission. And I'd known women in banking and finance for many, many years. We'd been a corporate member and an individual member. Um, and so I was very passionate about it. So I love being president of women in banking and finance. Um, and it is an amazing um, organization. It's a, a not-for-profit um, that's been around since 1980, and we are run by volunteers. Uh, we put on over 100 events last year. But when I took up the presidency of Women in Banking and Finance, we sat down together and said, you know, we've been around since 1980. What do we do best, and where do we want to see ourselves going forward? And we reflected on the importance of our network, um, the network work we do is phenomenal. Uh, we do mentoring programs, personal development programs, millennial programs, women on boards programs. So lots and lots of opportunities for women to um, achieve their full growth potential and to achieve their career ambitions. One of the other areas that we do a lot of work in is in relation to the awards. And I feel very passionate about the awards. They're called the Awards for Achievement for a reason, because it is the a phenomenal opportunity for us to recognize and celebrate the tremendous talent within the financial services sector. Um, and we're one of the first awards events for women in the city. But looking forward, um, there's a, a lot of support for an, an enormous net network like ours. And of course, we have five branches across the, the country as well. But for me, it was very much about recognizing the environment in which we are operating. So we have the Women in Finance Charter, we have the gender pay gap reporting, we've got the 100 year anniversary of women getting the vote. Last year was 100 years since women were allowed to join the armed forces. Next year is 100 years since women were allowed to practice the law. And I feel as if we're on this tremendous cusp of change. So Women in Banking and Finance has a focus on being the voice of women in the city to drive and deliver change to enable our corporate members to embrace those practices which will drive gender um, equality of opportunity within their organizations, and then working with government to help build on what the Women in Finance Charter is actually achieving. So we have a close working relationship with HMT and other government departments to better understand what can we do at the macro level, at the government level, to enable women to succeed in the financial services sector specifically, and then more broadly as women within the UK, as 51% of the talent and the population. Okay, so um, I want to move on to um, getting into more of the details around 
being chief privacy officer and what that what that has meant because obviously 2018 is considered to be quite a watershed year for um, the conversation around privacy and transparency, especially with the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, taking effect. So you've outlined some of the areas that that involves, but what what is the main focus for you and, and the team around the globe with GDPR? GDPR is a game changer, completely and utterly. And I have to say, it's taken privacy from the back room straight to the boardroom. Um, but it's been a very quick transition in many ways, particularly for firms um, who have been living under the current directive for many years or in d- lots of different jurisdictions where privacy is either not a feature at all um, or is only starting to gain traction. So it is a significant mindset and cultural change for firms. And that poses lots of challenges for someone in a role like me, which is a chief privacy officer. Now, thankfully, Thomson Reuters is totally on top of this, and they have got a grip with privacy and have a program in place and so on and so forth. But the real challenge, you know, even if you're in a firm that is hugely supportive of um, the privacy agenda, is translating that into privacy as the new normal. Taking it from complex legislation into something that we can actually all implement because it's a bit like information security. It doesn't sit with a department. Privacy doesn't sit with a nice little team somewhere who can read the legislation and tell you what to do. It really sits with everyone in the business. And as a result, it's translating those basic principles to the business so that people can implement in everything they do. So when they're thinking of sending out a mass mailing, they're thinking, ooh, crikey, I wonder what the privacy implications are. Do I have permission to send out this email to everybody? Um, What sort of things should I be including in it? Um, You know, what are the rules around direct marketing? Because guess what? They're changing all the time. So it's getting businesses and the individuals within those businesses to understand the privacy impact of everything they do. Uh, Within HR, it's, you know, who should be keeping the files on employees? Should managers have their own little subsection in Outlook together with a manual folder, together with what HR has, together with whomever? And by the way, nobody ever deletes anything. Or do we actually need to think about, you know, where does the main record sit? How long should we keep it? Who should have access to it? How do we protect it? Um, And then the other pieces is recognizing data subject rights. I mean, it's been a huge change Um, in practice, I think, for firms to recognize that data subjects have rights. They have the right to access their information, to change it if it's wrong, to ask for their data not to be processed, um, and they can also port their data. Um, So data subject rights need to be acknowledged and referred to, um, but the other piece of it is, is we also then need to hold data in a way so that it is readily accessible to those individuals when they need it. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for many firms has been that they've grown organically over the years and data has just exploded. And so mapping that data, understanding where it is and ensuring that you can readily access it if you need to is a huge and important element to it. One of the questions I often get actually in relation to um, a privacy practice is whether or not you should all be lawyers. Um, And I am a tremendous advocate of, no, we should not all be lawyers. I think there's a really important role for lawyers in terms of the advisory piece. 
Um, but I think one of the things about privacy is that if you're going to be truly effective, you really need to move away from a legalistic approach to a practical approach. Um, and so if the people who are helping to explain it to you and to help you shape your processes um, are not non-lawyers, then I think you're going to end up with a very legalistic and tedious approach that isn't really um, necessarily implementable in a simple way. And do you think that um, the individuals, and, and, and I mean um, even in their day-to-day -day sort of consumer lives and their understanding impacts the way people then respond in the business life? Because I think there has been a lot more um, awareness because of some of the things that have happened with Facebook and data breaches, etc. Does that help from a business perspective if individuals are understanding their own rights better? I think it's been one of the best ways to do training is to turn things on their head and say, put yourself in the feet of the customer, but also think about this in the context of your personal life. Um, and that's one of the fascinating features about privacy is it isn't just an issue for the workplace. It's an issue for people individually. How do I adjust the settings on my phone? Do I allow location tracking? Um, and then you can translate that into the work environment in a sense far more easily because you've had to deal with it personally as well. Um, how have you set up your internet security at home? You know, have you been have you have you been the subject of a cyber attack at home or have you been spammed? All of these things individuals have a personal experience of. And I think it really helps them to shape how they approach customers and how they then deal with data in the workplace as well. And again, as I said, it's a, one of the fascinating things about privacy is it has touch points absolutely everywhere. And it's very difficult these days to identify data that isn't non-personal. And even if it is non-personal, like weather data, it may still, in the end of the day, have an individual impact. And what makes data so important to firms these days is actually the ability to target it in an individual way. And so privacy always becomes a feature of that uh, strategy and that discussion. Yeah, um, absolutely fascinating. Um, I think it was our own technology reporter, Salvador Rodriguez, said in many ways, this is the biggest shape up, shake up in, in the history of the internet when it comes to data privacy. So, I mean, it's, it's having such global impact as well. And obviously I think that is really interesting because that um, changes people's perceptions about how GDPR impacts them. So what do you think is going to be the full impact of GDPR from that sort of knock-on effect globally? And then maybe a bit of a, a look forward. What do you think comes next? Excellent question. Um, do you remember that cartoon at the beginning of the internet age? And it was a picture of a dog um, at the keyboard. And underneath it said, no one on the internet knows that you're a dog. Yeah. And I love that. <laughs> and I, you know, that's just so brilliant. Um, and what's, what's sad is that that is so not the case anymore. But it used to be. It used to be that actually you couldn't be tracked and nobody knew who you were. And you could indeed be a dog on the internet, which is kind of cute. Um, but things have changed enormously. And so I think the single biggest impact for GDPR um, in the internet world is around privacy by design. Everyone is accountable for privacy by design. We now have to design and think about uh, how we do things on the internet, how we do things everywhere, to be honest, 
with privacy in mind. And you can't can't compartmentalize, there we go, (laughs) can't compartmentalize the issue um, to say, oh, well, you know, I just run this element or it's just my website, um, but they Mm. do other stuff or, you know, they're the designers, they have responsibility for their bit, but I can't impose my obligations, etc. and responsibilities on them. I think one of the things that the GDPR has done is ensure that everybody in that chain of activity around involvement with the online world is equally responsible for implementing the privacy principles. So from those who develop it to those who piggyback, to those who host it, to those who are subcontracted to process it, um, to those who leverage the data and then um, perhaps target back in, everyone has a responsibility and things need to be designed in a way so that they are secure, so that they respect data subject rights and that they're fair and open. And I think looking forward, um, trust and ethics are the two biggest themes. Um, At the end of the day, um, trust is a huge feature um, of anything online. Uh, You use certain vendors because you trust them. Um, I had an experience a little while ago where I I, uh, was going to buy a lovely winter coat from a vendor that I trust. And then actually I sought it fantastically. In fact, it was at a price that was too good to be true from a lesser known vendor. Um, And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to have a go. Um, And sure enough, I did not hit the jackpot. Um, I never got the coat. (laughs) (laughs) And I will truly go back to the well-known vendors at the end of the day, because there I have trust. With the other vendor, I never got the product. And I think they probably stole my credit card details because I got hacked yet again. Um, But with the trusted vendor, I don't. And I think that's absolutely key is building trust around uh, privacy um, and reliability. And the other evolving theme is around the ethics. So it's not just about, is it legal, but is it right? right. Mm. And, and that is that is the maturing of the discussion around privacy, because the first part has been about, um, you know, are we compliant with the technical requirements? And the second part is really around, but are we doing the right thing? That's really interesting. And also just the, all of the different areas that our privacy is touching, you can see that that will also drive a greater need for collaboration across the business um, from, as you say, product design to product release and sale and promotion and all of those things. People are going to have to collaborate a lot more than potentially they, they did in the past. Well, data isn't siloed anymore. Yeah. Um, data is shared. And I think that was one of the challenges with um, the previous legislation that it still held this concept of data being transferred. So a bit like posting a letter, you know, the data literally leaves me. I pop it in the post box and it arrives with you. I still don't have a copy. You've got the one and only. That's not the reality of the Mm. world today. It's about shared data and multiple copies. And that's where the legislation has to catch up in many areas is to recognize that the data um, is shared. There's lots of different stakeholders um, and it's in lots of different locations. So, Vivian, you said in an article that I read that this is the beginning and not the end and privacy will grow from merely being about compliance to a set of behaviours that businesses and individuals must embrace and reflect in all that they do. 
So what has been the biggest challenge in ensuring compliance with GDPR, especially across a a huge multinational organisation like Thomson Reuters, but just generally from your experience and your colleagues um, in the industry around really driving this behavioural change? I think one of the biggest challenges is that um, GDPR is a significant um, regional law. It goes across the 28 member states within the EU. But remember that there are 100 countries in the world that have privacy laws, and they have a different focus. Um, There's a lot of similarity. They're obvious. That is absolutely obvious. But there are a lot of differences as well. And so I think for a multinational organization, the biggest challenge is around consistency. How do you have consistency of policy? How do you have consistency of practice? particularly when you're designing technical systems. They need to be able to operate in particular ways, and the more complicated they become, the less user-friendly they are. And so consistency is absolutely key. So do you take everything up to the highest bar, in which case you can often create difficulties in jurisdictions where, A, they may not have privacy laws, or B, it might actually be inconsistent with the highest bar that you're looking to set. Um, Privacy laws are national. So across those 100 countries, there's lots of different flavors of of privacy. So it's a bit like ice cream. You know, we all know what ice cream looks and tastes like, but when you actually get into the flavors and, you know, is it going to be your Cornish cream ice cream or is it going to be gelato? They are significantly different. And so I think that's the biggest uh, challenge for a global organization um, is achieving that consistency, not only with the legal aspect of privacy law, but also with the cultural context. So activities that might be regarded as absolutely suitable in the US feel, frankly, creepy if you're in France or in Italy. Um, Things that are acceptable in Hong Kong, which has a privacy law, um, may not be compliant with EU GDPR requirements at all. And so it is about the legislation, but also that cultural context where people have a different view and perspective, and the legislation reflects that. And so I think that's our biggest issue. Mm, Yes, interesting. Um, So let's talk about, you know, 2017 was a, a big year for data breaches. We had Uber, Equifax, Yahoo, all fell victim. And there was also, of course, a lot of smaller organizations that suffered breach or cyber attack. When it comes to cyber threats, um, all types of organisations clearly are at risk. And you've you mentioned um, some of those kind of risks already, but what do you see as best practice that's developing across business and government to protect and improve data security? Well, there's been a lot of development, particularly around the legislative aspect. So raising the standard for cybersecurity, requiring firms to actually um, implement uh, data security uh, practices, technology, awareness, training, um, all of these things are, are really important. So cyber, again, has sort of gone from nowhere to somewhere very significant, um, fueled by these significant uh, issues uh, or these cyber attacks. So I think there's tremendous awareness now. Um, firms are getting to grips with what their responsibilities are. But the biggest challenge I think we have in relation to cyber is thinking that you can prevent it. It's not a case of if, but when. And even those firms that have some of the best security 
whether technical as well as organizational, are still going to be subject to regular and consistent cyber attacks. And I think the challenges for firms is that they have to be successful every single time. So whether they're getting hit once a day, 100 times a day, or 15,000 times a day, if you're a big global brand, for example, you've got to be successful each and every time you get hammered. Whereas the um, perpetrator only has to be successful once. And so I think if you just look at the maths, um, that at the end of the day, everyone is going to be subject to, at some point or another, um, a cyber attack. And so the real challenge for firms is to change the mindset so that it is not just about if, but when, and then addressing how do you address it when it happens. Obviously, you've got to make sure that you protect your customer's information and your own intellectual property. But when a cyber attack happens, how do you go about dealing with it, communicating it, and remediating it? Absolutely essential. And if you can give your customers a positive experience out of something negative, then you will continue to earn their trust and your brand will grow. Um, but if unfortunately you completely mess it up, then the reputational risks are incredibly high. And trying to cover up these things, obviously, we've, we've seen has not been the way to go forward. Yes, yes. Communication and getting the uh, the news out there quickly has clearly been a um, an advantage for those where, yeah, these, are, these issues have happened. I mean, you've then got the other side where there is so much change, so much development. You've got, um, you know, the Internet of Things, smart city initiatives. Um, these are opening up huge opportunities to automate, to personalize, to automate, to personalize, and to connect people together. Um, given cybersecurity risks with things like the Internet of Things, what do you think? of the privacy challenges of IoT and what that means for smart cities and some of these more automated um, opportunities that we're seeing from a business perspective? Well, I think privacy by design is the four. So the difficulty with the Internet of Things is often we've got a relatively cheap product with uh, an Internet-enabled uh, feature or facility to it, you know, whether it's a baby monitor or a talking doll or whatever, or your, your, in, indoor, your heating system at home. But um, the security around it isn't necessarily anticipating how that um, completely neutral um, uh, technology could potentially be exploited due to the interconnectedness. And we've already seen a couple of cyber breaches where it's been a exploitation of some Internet of Things type of feature or technology that has facilitated the rapid and exponential spread of a particular uh, cyber attack and increased the impact enormously. So I think we have to stop thinking about oh, you know, this is just a little feature in a doll that lets you sort of play back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you can adjust stuff if you log on to the website, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, really, you know, what what is the impact there? I think you need to be thinking a lot more carefully about the interconnectedness. Otherwise, we're going to end up with something of a domino effect. Um, and we need to recognize that interconnectedness means interdependence. Mm. Um, and so even if something seems small and insignificant, the potential for exploitation is huge. 
Um, and so even the smallest, most insignificant little Internet of Things feature needs to be designed with a bigger picture in mind. And I think that's the mindset change that we need to move to. And that's all about what Privacy by Design is thinking about. Think about the implications. Think about the potential. Very interesting. So in your expert opinion, is GDPR good for business? Oh, that is a big question. Um, I have come to know and to love the GDPR. Um, I think that the GDPR is challenging to implement, but overall, I would say that it is good for business because it builds trust. We have it out there, it's transparent, and it's promoting best practice in relation to privacy. So that really must be good for business. Excellent. And really strong themes there around trust and ethics, which I think are very interesting going forward. Connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance, Rescue Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. Okay, on to our Risky Women Rants and Revelations. So, what one thing do you know now that you wish you knew then or the piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Speak up and be bold. Ask what you want for. Um, I think you have to recognize that no one can read your mind. So if you want it, you're going to have to say it. I think that would be my advice to my younger self. Very good. Yes, I always say that to people is no one is walking around with your CV in their head (laughs) and they can't find that, you know, box to put you in. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And what one thing do you wish that you could change now and why? I wish that we could have genuine gender equality of opportunity across the board. Um, And the reason I wish that is that it makes tremendous business sense. And frankly, it's fair. So and that reflects itself in my passion for women in banking and finance and what we're looking to achieve there. I think gender equality is important, not just for women but for men as well, it creates the right working environment. And as all the studies show, it's great for business. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Risky Women is a vibrant network at the centre of a global community in a rapidly growing, evolving and influential industry. Given the continued pace of change, our rapid fire round revisits the most pressing topics to share ideas and offer listeners new perspectives. Okay. Our rapid fire round. One word to sum up the world from a governance, risk, regulation and compliance privacy perspective. What's your one word? Evolving. Oh, yes. (laughs) There's still lots of change to come. And your top risk for 2018? Cyber. Absolutely cyber. Front and centre. And what's your cure for the cost of compliance? Don't we wish we knew the answer to that? I would say basic principles, not bureaucracy. The challenge is is that too much compliance has become bureaucratic. So if we could reduce it to basic principles that people can actually implement easily, I think only then can we reduce the cost of compliance. Biggest technology impact on compliance and risk? Artificial intelligence would be my choice. Um, And I think that's because... Um, we in compliance and risk, we've moved from very much a manual approach 
um, then to an automatic approach. And now we're leading with an intelligent approach um, or artificial intelligence approach. And your outlook for the year ahead, optimistic, pessimistic, uncertain? Well, I think the outlook is uncertain, but my view is optimistic because I see all change as opportunity. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Vivian, for joining us today on Risky Women. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Risky Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email. Thank you.